Chapter Two, Part One of The American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Tabler. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter Two The Beginnings of American. Part One In Colonial Days. William Gifford, the first editor of the Quarterly Review, is authority for the tale that some of the Puritan clergy of New England, during the Revolution, proposed that English be formally abandoned as the national language of America, and Hebrew adopted in its place. An American chronicler, Charles Astor Bristed, makes the proposed tongue Greek, and reports that the change was rejected on the ground that it would be more convenient for us to keep the language as it is, and make the English speak Greek. The story, though it has the support of the editors of the Cambridge History of American Literature, has an apocryphal smack. One suspects that the savagely anti-American Gifford invented it. But, true or false, it well indicates the temper of those times. The passion for complete political independence of England bred a general hostility to all English authority, whatever its character, and that hostility in the direction of present concern to us culminated in the revolutionary attitude of Noah Webster's Dissertations on the English Language, printed in 1789. Webster harbored no fantastic notion of abandoning English altogether, but he was eager to set up American as a distinct and independent dialect. Let us, he said, seize the present moment and establish a national language as well as a national government. As an independent nation, our honor requires us to have a system of our own in language as well as government. Long before this, the challenge had been flung. Scarcely two years after the Declaration of Independence, Franklin was instructed by Congress on his appointment as minister to France to employ the language of the United States, not simply English, in all his replies or answers to the communications of the ministry of Louis the Sixteenth, And eight years before the Declaration, Franklin himself had drawn up a characteristically American scheme of spelling reform, and had offered plenty of proof in it, perhaps unconsciously, that the standards of spelling and pronunciation in the New World had already diverged noticeably from those accepted on the other side of the ocean. In acknowledging the dedication of Webster's dissertations, Franklin endorsed both his revolt against English domination and his forecast of widening differences in future, though protesting at the same time against certain Americanisms that have since come into good usage and even migrated to England. This protest was marked by Franklin's habitual mildness, but in other quarters dissent was voiced with far less urbanity. The growing independence of the colonial dialect, not only in its spoken form, but also in its most dignified written form, had begun, indeed, to attract the attention of purists in both England and America, and they sought to dispose of it in its infancy by force majeure, 
one of the first and most vigorous of the attacks upon it was delivered by john witherspoon a scotch clergyman who came out in 1769 to be president of princeton in partibus infidelium this witherspoon brought a scotch hatred of the english with him and at once became a leader of the party of independence he signed the declaration to the tune of much rhetoric and was the only clergyman to sit in the continental congress but in matters of learning he was orthodox to the point of hunkerousness and the strange locutions that he encountered on all sides aroused his pedagogic ire i have heard in this country he wrote in seventeen eighty one in the senate at the bar and from the pulpit and see daily in dissertations from the press errors in grammar improprieties and vulgarisms which hardly any person of the same class in point of rank and literature would have fallen into in great britain it was witherspoon who coined the word americanism and at once the english guardians of the sacred vessels began employing it as a general synonym for vulgarism and barbarism another learned immigrant the reverend jonathan boucher soon joined him this boucher boucher was a friend of washington but was driven back to england by his loyalist sentiments he took revenge by printing various charges against the americans among them that of making all the haste they can to rid themselves of the english language after the opening of the new century all the british reviews maintained an eager watchfulness for these abhorrent inventions and denounced them when found with the utmost vehemence the edinburgh which led the charge opened its attack in october eighteen o four in the appearance of the five volumes of chief justice marshall's life of george washington during the three years following gave the signal for corrective articles in the british critic the critical review the annual the monthly and the eclectic the british critic in april eighteen o eight admitted somewhat despairingly that the damage was already done that the common speech of the united states has departed very considerably from the standard adopted in england the others however sought to stay the flood by invective against marshall and later against his rival biographer the reverend aaron bancroft the annual in eighteen o eight pronounced its high curse and anathema upon that torrent of barbarous phraseology which was pouring across the atlantic and which threatened to destroy the purity of the english language in bancroft's life of george washington eighteen o eight according to the british critic there were gross americanisms inordinately offensive to englishmen at almost every page the reverend jeremy belknap long anticipating elwyn white and lounsbury tried to obtain a respite from this abuse by pointing out the obvious fact that many of the americanisms under fire were merely survivors of an english that had become archaic in england but this effort counted for little for on the one hand the british purists enjoyed the chase too much to give it up and on the other hand there began to dawn in america a new spirit of nationality at first very faint 
which viewed the differences objected to not with shame but with a fierce sort of pride in the first volume of the north american review william ellery channing spoke out boldly for the american language and literature and a year later pickering published his defiant dictionary of words and phrases which have been supposed to be peculiar to the united states this thin collection of five hundred specimens set off a dispute which yet rages on both sides of the atlantic pickering however was undismayed he had begun to notice the growing difference between the english and american vocabulary and pronunciation he said while living in london from seventeen ninety nine to eighteen o one and he had made his collections with the utmost care and after taking counsel with various prudent authorities both english and american already in the first year of the century he continued the english had accused the people of the new republic of a deliberate designed to effect an entire change in the language and while no such design was actually harbored the facts were the facts and he cited the current newspapers the speeches from pulpit and rostrum and webster himself in support of them this debate over pickering's list as i say still continues lounsbury entrenched behind his grotesque categories once charged that four-fifths of the words in it had no business being there and gilbert m tucker has argued that only seventy of them were genuine americanisms but a careful study of the list in comparison with the early quotations recently collected by thornton seems to indicate that both of these judgments and many others no less have done injustice to pickering he made the usual errors of the pioneer but his sound contributions to the subject were anything but inconsiderable and it is impossible to forget his diligence and his constant shrewdness he established firmly the native origin of a number of words now in universal use in america e g backwoodsman breadstuffs caucus clapboard sleigh and squatter and of such familiar derivatives as gubernatorial and dutiable and he worked out the genesis of not a few loan words including prairie scow rapids hominy and barbecue it was not until eighteen forty eight when the first edition of bartlett appeared that his work was supplanted End of chapter two part one